Hello and welcome to season two of Tell Her This podcast. I'm your host, Rochelle Rice, and I'm so happy to be back with you. I took a long break that included travel, rest, and Tell Her This snagging a nomination for a Black Podcast Award. This podcast is growing. More than 50,000 downloads across 140 countries. That's major for a small, independently run podcast. Thank you for listening and sharing. Please don't stop. If you're new here, Tell Her This is a storytelling podcast. No advice, no self-help, just stories from women who represent people just like you and just like me. What began as a journey more than 6,000 miles around the U.S. has continued to more stories, more women who have opened their lives to all of us, and more community. Today's episode includes stories of physical and psychological abuse. Sensitive listeners are advised. All right, let's get started. This is the Tell Her This podcast. My name is Nishtha Raj and I'm 42 years old. My friend Nishtha is intelligent and creative. I've always known her to be independent and self-sufficient. We met through an artist residency. She's a violinist trained in North Indian Hindustani classical tradition and has branched out from performing to opening a music school and creating and founding District of Raga, presenting and preserving the culture and performing arts of South Asia. I love Nishta. She's beautiful and talented and warm. Through various conversations and little comments here and there, I knew that her past was complicated, but what I learned was so much more. I am a a wife, a sister, daughter, friend, uh, colleague, creative musician, um, dog mom, uh, someone who ho- I hope brings joy to other people, uh, a cur- curator of events and community organizer, a survivor of a of traumatic um, of a traumatic childhood. But I'm excited to be where I am in my life, and I finally feel I'm at a place of calm and stability, which I didn't have a lot of growing up. So I'm really grateful for that. I think we all have ideas of who we want to be and that constantly changes. Um, And we are able, the beauty is that we're able to uh, reinvent ourselves and, you know, uh, show up again each day as a new opportunity. Nishta's journey has been one of healing. Her childhood was less than ideal and after losing both parents when she was in her 20s, Growing up has meant more than just milestones and change of address. For Nishta, growing up meant endurance and finding her way out. Both of my parents are Punjabi, uh, which is from the northern part of India. My father was born in what is now known as Pakistan before the partition, and my mother was born 
right after the partition in Benares, which is in India. So I was born in Boston, grew up in Houston. We moved there when I was three. My dad was working for um, either Compaq or Digital at the time, so he got a transfer. Um, so we grew up in uh, a suburb, Spring, Texas, uh, on the north side of Houston. And um, yeah, we visited India many times, but uh, I did grow up in the States. Saturday mornings, my mom would turn on, I think, one of the very few Indian radio stations that we had access to. This is like probably late 80s, early 90s, and um, the radio program would always start with uh, Bhajan by Jagjit Singh, Jairadha Madhav, and that song is just like forever burned <laughs> into my memory because it was something that I heard every Saturday morning before the radio program would start. It's a beautiful song. Um, so that's sort of like a soundscape of what I would hear. And then my mom would always uh, call her sister on the weekends when the um, phone calls were, long distance phone calls were cheaper. So I would just hear her chatting in Punjabi, like squealing sometimes because she was so excited to talk to her sister and fast talking, uh, you know, so there was a little bit of, I didn't always understand it, but I could always tell that she was having a lot of fun. What else? Sounds of my childhood. Lots of spiritual music played in my home, bhajans and kirtans and, um, you know, uh, the smells of obviously Indian food, <laughs> Bollywood, uh, Bollywood movies, particularly the earlier ones from the 60s and 70s. Of course, there are other sounds that like weren't always pleasant, like shouting and you know, family <laughs> disagreements, um, things like that. But that's also part of my reality too, so. Spirituality was a huge, huge part of my earlier life. My mother was a very, very religious woman and um, she was always attracted to not only, you know, Hindu temples, um, as we are Hindu, but she went to the Buddhist temple, she went to the mosque, she went to synagogue, she went to wherever she could find um, religion and spirituality and people to talk about religion with. But primarily, um, we would go to um, the ISKCON temple in Houston. Um, I think our mom took us to one in Boston too, but um, we had a lot of, uh, I guess we were community members there, so a lot of my childhood was spent um, doing service in the temple. So, you know, that could be ranging from cooking, helping out in the kitchen, to cleaning, to uh, I used to play music in the temple uh, all the time. So that was part of it. And um, I also lived in the ashrams um, in Houston, Dallas, uh, Chicago as well. So waking up at, you know, 3.34 to get to the first service at 4.30 was, uh, you know, something that I wasn't really fond of, but we did. So we never actually lived in the ashram as a family. Um, I would uh, spend summers in different temples. Um, I traveled to Poland with the Krishna group. I forget the name of the time, but we would... Uh, so experiences like that where I lived outside of the home um, before I was 18. Um, but I was in the care of, you know, uh, people my mother trusted. And so sometimes, because we lived very far from the temple in Houston, I would stay with... Um, devotees around the temple um, who have become, you know, like family. My second mom, I always call her my second mom. She lives in Dallas now, but uh, at the time at Houston, in Houston, I stayed at her house a lot. My Guyanese mother, <laughs> I had a lot of family, uh, or, you know, community members that became family to me. So I'd stay with them, but then also in the ashram too uh, at different times throughout my childhood um, to deepen my own spirituality too is just something that was part of the practice. 
had a very, very strong spiritual upbringing and it gave me great community during a time of chaos in my life where my family situation wasn't stable. So having the support of um, the community members and having something to hold on to that gave me, um, I think, hope at the time and something just to get through those challenging times. And uh, my spiritual master, who was like a father to me, really was a big part of big part of that because he guided me. And I also wanted to be there, I think. You know, deep down, um, my spirituality comes, I think, from my mother. And so I think, uh, yeah, some so for some kids, it may not have been so, I guess, natural, but or um, something that is, uh, I guess, you know, I don't know, maybe because I was, it was just given to me at such a young age, and I didn't really have a lot of other outlets. I think I held on to it because it was something to hold on to. Nishta had a tumultuous childhood, beginning with her father leaving the home when she was seven years old and continuing with her mother spiraling and eventually dying after a years-long battle with depression and severe health challenges when Nishta was in her 20s. I think I was around seven when my father left, like officially left um, our family. Um, But prior to that leading up, of course, I don't remember so much, but um, my sister and I talk about this, but um, my mother and my father had an arranged marriage and they were just not very (laughs) well matched, unfortunately. And they struggled quite a lot um, in their marriage. And um, unfortunately, unfortunately, like, I mean, I'm glad I'm alive, but they brought us into that situation, my sister and I, and um, I guess maybe with the hopes that their marriage would get better, but it didn't. And there was a lot of um, tension between my mother's family and my dad, uh, my dad. And I think, you know, he, he dealt with it in the way that he could. And ultimately that meant for him that he had to remove himself from that situation, um, unfortunately for my sister and I, uh, because he basically just left. And prior to that, he would take smaller business trips, which I think he would extend because he just was so unhappy. But um, yeah, around seven is, I think my memory um, is when he actually uh, officially left and basically didn't come back after that time and abandoned our family. All I remember is the communication was sporadic with him. Maybe le- I remember getting letters and packages and phone calls, but I don't remember when they stopped. But my mom also had family in Delhi, and I think he would sometimes go visit them because he wanted to find out about my sister and I. Or he would ask. They had a lot of common, you know, friends or whatever, just like you know, community, whatever. And so he would um, sometimes inquire about my sister and I. Throughout the years, he would um, we would hear from him, and I don't know how much of the communication was block from my mother. Um, but sometimes he would call, I have memories of sitting in class, um, probably when I was in the fifth grade or around that age. And my teacher would say, Oh, there's a call from India from you for you as your father. Um, so I always wondered why he would call my school, but now as an adult, I can look back and think, Oh, maybe my mother didn't want him to talk to us, uh, because she was very angry with him. Rightfully slow, but it takes two to tango. So my mom also played her part in, in their, um, situation, but um, yeah, and he would send gifts. Uh, parcels would arrive from India with you know just various items for um, girls, like girls' clothing, bangles, etc. So, but I didn't really have any contact with him. 
My mother suffered greatly um, her health during, after my father left, it was, um, she, she did the best she could to handle it as a, you know, Indian woman whose husband has left her with two girls to raise what she received from her family in terms of like how they regarded her as the black sheep of the family because of that and the disgrace she suffered because her husband left her. Um, so emotionally, she had a huge um, decline, I think, in just terms of her mental health and then also physically, you know, mental health affects your physical um, well-being as well. So uh, physically, she also had a very fragile um, state. Her younger brother and her older brother all lived in within the area. So um, I just remember there was a lot of tension between all of them, and particularly be because um, my mother would tell my my dad, you know, you should leave because my brother is going to take care of, of my girls. They're not your girls, and she would separate her family, her her blood family, from my from my dad. So um, there was a lot of like. Um, angst and tension around those relationships. My my dad never got along with um, my mom's side of the family, and and he also had his own reasons. He assisted a lot of my mother's siblings to get their green cards to come to this country, and she, you know, really I don't like, like to use the word used, but she did take advantage of that situation to get all of her family here in the States, and um, the sad thing is when he left her, my dad left her and our family, I feel like they didn't reciprocate with her. Instead, they shunned her in a way that, yeah, they made her feel like, I don't know how they made her feel, but I could gather that, you know, they would, you know, torture her because her husband left her and she had to raise her two daughters by herself and financially she wasn't stable. so. Her younger brother, you know, my uncle, took on that responsibility. We basically became, uh, I guess, responsibility, and he was our primary, one of our primary caregivers, like, financially as well. He took on that responsibility. So I think he resented um, that a lot. Divorce is always hard, no matter, even if it's in the best of situations, but particularly in this situation, um, I think it really affected her mental state and her ability to mother. We lived with our uncle for a while and my grandmother, my mom's mother, and um, it just wasn't a happy situation. There was really no stability. There was no, there was a lot of neglect for my sister and I. I always say I had a very traumatic childhood and I just knew things were never, things weren't good and I knew there was a better way <laughs> to live, um, but I just didn't have it. When my mom died, that was a really, really um, difficult time and I think courageous might be the word <laughs> to describe how I had to I mean of course I allowed myself to wallow and grieve and do the things anybody would who would you know who lost who's lost their mother when I look back at my childhood and the things that I experienced um, I feel like courageous describes you know um My sister and I both, like, we were courageous to come through that, you know, to get through it, to be normal. 
well, whatever normal is, you know, but like to be two people today who show up the way we do, I feel like that took a lot of courage, you know, um, to survive it. I talk about having a traumatic childhood, um, and I mentioned there was uh, abuse in my home, um, so my sister and I and my mother, we lived with my uncle, my mom's younger brother, for a number of years, but he just wasn't a mentally stable person either, and he would control um, my mom by, you know, because he was taking care of us financially, so he would, you know, um, withhold things that, you know, in a way to control her, and he was violent with her, he was abusive. This is not something I like to share, but it is a part of my childhood. He would send my sister and I to go sit in his car, and and I, and he would he would put us in there. And we knew what he was doing. He was hitting our mother. He was yelling at her. He was taking out all his frustration on her. You know, and a lot of times my sister and I would call the police because what else do you do? You know, there's violence going on in your home and. Your kids, you really don't know what to do, but um, then he would get even more angry. I have these memories um, of sitting in the car with my sister. I remember the car was like a white Lincoln or something with an ugly velvet, like maroon interior. I hate that car. <laughs> anyway, so like, yeah, we would be sitting in the car holding each other crying because like we were worried for our mother, you know, and then um, like... After that, like after we moved out, like he, you know, we moved into a home that he paid for and he would turn off the lights because he could, or he wouldn't pay the electricity bill because he could. And then I remember like one of our neighbors, uh, Mrs. Elgin, <laughs> uh, she was so kind. We would sometimes have to like run to her house and hide because he was looking for our mother and God knows what he wanted to do to her. So we had people like that who helped us. And I'm just a kid through all of this, like, crying because like, I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that we were in trouble. My uncle's name is, he, he's passed on now too, but so his name was, but I always called him Rakshish because Rakshish in Hindi means demon. So I would, see, I would say demon uncle, <laughs> you know, and that's not a good feeling, but that's like my sister, I would call him Rakshish uncle because like he was a demon to us. Like, yes, he took care of us, but mentally he just wasn't stable. And so he was fighting his own demons himself. It was not only him, my mom's older brother, uh, the eldest, eldest in the family, he was abusive. They were all abusive with their mother and, you know, they just, there was a lot of anger and verbal abuse, fighting. And, you know, even after our mom died, you know, my um, aunts and uncles blamed my sister and I for her death because we left her and we didn't care for her. I mean, this is according to them. They would, you know, say, oh, you're the, you two girls are the reason your dad left your mother and, you know, things like that. For Nishta, it was the love and care from her big sister that sustained her even beyond her childhood. I'm old enough to be out of it, you know, and be grateful that, um, yeah, I survived that. And my sister was a huge part of that. She took care of me. She guided me. She, you know, she um, protected me from a lot of things, you know, um, as my older sister and 
wanting to take care of me in that way. And so I'm grateful to her too, that, you know, she's the reason I'm here <laughs> in DC. Um, she moved here, um, to go to grad school at AU and I eventually joined her because, um, yeah, I was, I think after our mom died, but, um, yeah, we, you know, um, are each other's ride and die. <laughs> and, uh, but she, she built a life for herself here and she opened her arms and her home to me to allow me to come and, uh, be here and rest and recuperate after our mom died. And I, I was kind of like floundering, not knowing where, <laughs> what I was doing, where I was going. And, um, you know, she established herself here. And so I'm so grateful to her that, you know, she's the reason that I came here and I stayed and, uh, I don't know where else I would be, but, <laughs> um, she got us out of it. I always attribute that to her because I could have easily spiraled. Um, you know, if I had stayed in Houston, even when my mom was alive, I made a very conscious decision after like graduating from college to leave because I had lived, you know, up until that time in that toxic, you know, family situation. I mean, when I was in college in Houston, uh, my sister and I lived together in an apartment. So we were like physically removed, but not mentally, not emotionally. You know, we were still uh, swirling around with our mom. And, and I had a lot of regret too. I'm like, oh, maybe if I had stayed, maybe her health wouldn't have deteriorated or, but at the same time, like I could have just continued to go down that spiral with her. When I talk about her and I think about her, a lot of my emotions that come up are regret because I couldn't save her. But then I have to remind myself that wasn't my job, you know? She didn't save me to some extent, and I'm not trying to be like petty about it, but she did the best she could to mother my sister and I, and I did the best I could as her daughter. The episode isn't over yet, but I want to take a minute to say, tell her this needs your support. This is a self-funded project, but for less than a cup of coffee, you can keep this labor of love going. Click the link in the show notes to buy me a coffee or head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash tell her this and donate what you can. All right, let's get back to the show. When Nishta was in her early 20s and her mother was still alive, Nishta's sister, Gita, facilitated a reunion with their father. My sister, like I think I was starting the story, she, um, you know, did, she tried so many ways to help our mother out of this, like, sinking hole that she was in in terms of, like, continu continuously spiraling with her health, her mental health, physical health, emotional health. Um, you know, she was very depressed. Like I, I just kind of got used to that's how my mother is. Like I would come home from school. I didn't know like what mood she'd be in. And like, sometimes there'd be food on the table and cause she had a good day. Sometimes it would just be like a hot mess and, you know, we would take care of ourselves. But my sister really tried so many different ways to get my mom out of the depression. But I think, you know, when the person who doesn't want to do it for themselves, unless they are in that unless they're ready to, it's a really hard, hard, hard battle. But um, my sister, God bless her, she was always so um, compassionate. So anyway, she had found a doctor in um, South India, in Bangalore, or maybe it was an ashram or something, or some type of wellness place where you could go. 
And she decided to take my mom there to drop her off and, you know, uh, allow my mom some space and time to whatever, heal and be well and get away from her environment. So she had taken my mom to India. Um, and I, I don't know how she had an email address for my father. I can't remember where we got that. But and anyways, um, so I think she had dropped my mom off in Bangalore and then she had a her flight had um, a return stop layover in Delhi. And so she knew, we kind of knew where our father was. Well, not really, but we had heard, we would hear that he was living in, you know, Tanzania with his brother, or sometimes he was in Chandigarh with his sister, or he was in Delhi. He kind of just, after he left the U.S., he kind of, he went back to India, and then he just kind of roamed around. He lived in ashrams. He, like, traveled. I don't know exactly know how he spent his time, but... Anyway, so we never really knew exactly where he was. So, um, but I think she had an email address from him for him, and she was like, "Let me just, you know, send a quick email." She, I think she didn't. The layover wasn't um, planned. I think it was like a last minute flight change thing or something. So she emailed him. I think the night before her flight in the in the morning. And she was like, "I don't even know if this is the right email address, but this is your daughter, Geetha." Um, I'll be arriving in Delhi tomorrow morning at such and such time, and I have like 10 hours of a layover. If you want to see me, come. I'll be in the airport. Come to this airport, and uh, maybe I'll see you or something like that. Again, I don't remember how she had an email address. I have to actually ask her that. Uh, I wish my sister was here because she'd probably be like, you're telling this story wrong. <laughs> uh, anyways, but uh, so she, that was the gist of the story is she was like, I'll be at the airport at this set, at this time. If you happen to get this email, you know, come see me there if you want to see me. At that time, people weren't checking email very uh, frequently because it was like you probably had to go to Internet Cafe or something. And this is like early 2000s or something, you know. So... Um, so, and she's like, oh, I don't even know if he's going to get this email. There's like very slim a chance. But, um, anyways, she landed at the airport and she remembers like, I'm telling the story for her, but I remember she shares this all the time that, um, she was like, he didn't recognize her. He, she showed up, he showed up to the airport, but he didn't recognize her because it had been, I don't know how many years now it had been enough time that he didn't know what she looked like or he didn't recognize her. And she says, you know, I had a decision to make. I could walk right past him because, you know, it was emotional for her too. Like, do I want to give this person the gift of being in my presence when he's, you know, like abandoned us and whatever. So, but she decided to, um, you know, acknowledge him. And so she went up to him and she's like, hi, I'm Geetha, I'm your daughter. He came back into our life that day. He um, he had told her that he rarely checks email, but he had spontaneously checked email that night before, and he got her email, and he was in Chandigarh, which is about maybe a four or five hour train ride from Delhi. So he said he like immediately bought a train ticket, hopped on a train early in the next morning, like four in the morning, so he could be at the airport by the time that her flight landed. So, I mean, it was meant to be because he checked his email and he happened to see it, and he was, you know, close enough to come see her. He was very, very happy to see her. He took her to go meet um, his mother, who was still living at the time. I never met her, and he met. Uh, she met his um, one of his older brother and wife and cousins, who all knew about 
uh, Geetha and I, but um, we obviously we didn't really have much connection with our father's family. I didn't even know how many cousins I had on that side and what their names were. But anyway, so she was introduced to um, his side of the family, um, and he you know he just took her around and showed her a little bit of Delhi. And, the, and, the, and then the most like I guess endearing part of the story is that. He had brought with him uh, a suitcase full of just gifts that he had bought over the years, and he'd stored in some locker at some train station. Because, like again, like I said, he didn't really have he didn't have a home. He moved around from place to place, and anyway, so um, in the suitcase was like bangles for a seven year old, eight year old, nine year old, ten year old, and like just little things that he had collected over the years. Because I mean. Despite what he did, he, you know, leaving our family, I, he, and people, other people have told me this too, like his friends in, De- in um, Delhi, who I came to know after I reunited with him, like his best friend and his best friend's wife, um, you know, they would always say, your father was just thinking about you too, all the time. I know he carried a lot of sadness and grief for, you know, for uh, breaking up our family and, you know, abandoning us and not being there for us, my sister and I. And I know he had problems with my mother, but I could never really make peace with like, okay, you know, you can divorce my mom, but don't divorce my sister and I, you know, like be around for the two children that you fathered and take care of them, take care of your responsibilities. But again, my he was also a very troubled person, I think, because he did the best he could. I feel he saved himself, but he didn't save my sister and I, because he knew how crazy my mother's family was. Like, that's what drove him away. And of course, that's more complicated than that. I think it was right before I graduated college. And um, somehow it came to be that he wanted to come to the graduation. And um, and that would have been the first time that he had seen my mother, too. My mother was still alive then. And so um, he came to my college graduation. It was the most awkward thing I've experienced in my life because my sister and I were living in an apartment together. My mother was living with her brother. We all knew he was coming. And so my father stayed with my sister and I. I don't feel like, I don't think there was um, like fighting or screaming or anything like that. But I remember we had like a dinner at my apartment and it was like my mother and my father and my sister and I, and it was the weirdest feeling because I had never experienced that. Like a, nor- like a normal family, I'm saying normal in quotes because we were never a normal family, but like outwardly it looked like, oh, okay, there's the dad, there's the mom, there's the two kids. But it was such a weird, weird, weird thing. And I don't, I don't know if like what it really accomplished because there was a lot of angry people <laughs> At my dad for, you know, and it, I, I keep saying this, like I, I uh, you know, he, he did a bad thing, right? He left our family. But in the same space, I have to acknowledge that, you know, it takes two people in that situation. And my mom was not, at, you know, completely faultless. But, um, but again, the blame was all on him. And outwardly to society, he looked like the villain, right? So it, I think it was brave of him to come. I don't know what his motivation was really to come to my graduation and he hadn't been to the U.S. in so long. And um, it was a really awkward time for me because this man shows up as my biological father and, you know, I don't know who he is. I, you know, and I just, I remember the first thing he said to me, he was like, you look really different. I'm like, yeah, 
Uh-huh. It's been it's been a long time. I mean, I didn't say that, but I feel like my my sentiment was like, yeah. What what do you think? You know, it's been several years since you laid eyes on me, and you know, I'm what 21, 22 at the time. And last time you saw me, I was seven. Of course, I'm gonna look different. But I think he probably was taken aback or shocked to like, you know, when you don't see somebody for that long and this person is your child, you know, you're probably just like. Well, and so I know he had a lot of regret about not being there for my sister and I and um, being part of our lives. And yeah, so it was a bumpy road after that to kind of um, get to know him. Nishta and I came to be friends through our music community. In fact, her debut album, Exit One, a mix of Hindustani classical music, ragas, and more, is a beautiful look into her extraordinary artistry. While her journey to music was a natural progression, starting from her time playing music in the temple as a child, her work to study was hard-earned. After graduating college, she decided to move to India to study Indian classical music at the source. Her father, a new presence in her life, wasn't convinced. After after he came to Houston for my college graduation, I was on a journey to discover music. Like, I was like... Regardless of him, I was like, I'm going to India. I'm going to study music. Um, this is what I want to do. Like, I, I was graduating. I didn't really want to, I wasn't looking for jobs. I was like, I'd already discovered, like, my path of music. And I was like, I just, I'm going to India. You know, that's, I knew that. And so I told this to him. And of course, he was very disappointed. He was like, what? You're going to, why are you coming to India to study music? Like, that's the dumbest thing he'd ever heard. <laughs> But I think, you know, to him, like, it was like, wow, you were you were born in America. You have all these privileges. You're educated. Why do you want to, you know, now go to India and study music? Like, what are you going to do with your life? And it wasn't, you know, like the typical career path of an Indian, South Asian person, like doctor, lawyer, engineer. And um, it took me a long time to see his perspective. I did eventually, but I think we just didn't see each other's point of view. For him, you know, education was his way of uplifting himself from, you know, tough times and, you know, um, getting out of India. And he came to the U.S. on uh, scholarships and, you know, to study as student visas. And he kept getting, he kept uh, enrolling in different um, educational programs to stay in this country. He had quite a few degrees because he was just, um, he wanted to stay in the country and education was one of the ways he did that. And I, I appreciate what his struggles were coming from the partition, you know, those were bad times, and you know he he was very big on education. He educated all of his younger siblings. He insisted that his two sisters be educated, and they weren't. Uh, it wasn't the plan because they were female, and so he. I appreciate that, but I think you know he didn't appreciate my um, passion for music. And you know, at that time I was so young, I was like I needed to experience something that I control, that I set for myself. I also wanted to get away from Houston. Um, there was just a lot of grief for me emotionally too, so much trauma. I needed to get away from that. I needed to like see other things in the world and experience other things that were outside of my little circle in Houston where I just really all the time felt heaviness and sadness and grief and I needed bigger things in my life. So, And I felt like music was the way for me to do that. He was like, okay, well, if you want to come to India, I'm going to help you. And I never asked for his help. I never, you know, I was worried because I didn't want it to come with any <laughs> strings attached. But um, anyway, so yeah, we kind of ended up like intertwining because of my desire to go to India. And he wanted to 
help that help me do that financially a little bit too. I think he wanted to take some responsibility. I ended up moving to India and living there for a number of years um, where I had more close contact with him and we could, um, I'm, I was able to like see him regularly and, you know, um, meet with him and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was just a really awkward time too, because I was still trying to get to know this person as a father. And, um, you know, India is a very tough place for, for women to be. <laughs> and he was very worried about my safety. So he would question my choices of like, why did you study music in college? And like, why did you do this? And I'm like, well, if you cared so much, where were you when I was making these decisions? Why weren't you there like to guide me or to put in your influence or whatever it is that he, the control he wanted to exert. So yeah, I had, a, I always like, um, but it has with him a lot. I think I have a lot of him in me, my personality, like we're both very hot-headed. I probably get it from him and I'm very stubborn, like, and I think he is, he was too. And I, we, together, two stubborn people, is <laughs> just not a good mix. It was also anger too, because I was still like very, very angry with him and I needed a place to put all that anger. You know, I, I was trying to work through it at the same time, get to know this person trying to separate that this is the person that abandoned my family, but this person is also my biological father. How do I separate him from that? I can't. I'll never be able to separate from him, separate him from that, but also like give him a second chance because he is my father, right? He is. He was somebody that is a part of me or I'm a part of him. And no matter, I can never change that. And I can't ever run away from that. So it was a really um, fine balance of where like, okay, let him be my father, but at the same time, you're this strange man telling me what to do, where to go, what to wear, who to see, you know. And I think it came out of concern for me being a young woman. But, um, and then, yeah, just like, you know, why are you studying music? What are you going to do with your life? Basically, like it was worthless or, you know, of course, he, I don't know, he didn't approve of it. And, but I was also really determined. I was like, you can be a part of this, but that's it. <laughs> you know, I am not, you know, really here to take your advice at this point in my life. And if I need it, I'll ask you. But I think, you know, he had a hard time with that. We had a very bumpy relationship and, you know, he passed, he passed um, in 2010. So I really only had like six, seven years of getting to know him. And that really wasn't a lot of time because I, I had moved back to the U.S. Uh, in between that time. So I wasn't like, uh, my, you know, I didn't have so much contact with him or I didn't get to see him a lot still. And so part of that time was, you know, um, still trying to get to know him from afar. After some years in India, studying music and forging a complicated, if not strained relationship with her father, Nishta moved back to the U.S. Some years after she was back in the States, her father died. They never got to a place of full reconciliation and closure on their painful past. I remember writing a letter to him. I was even angry that he died. I was like, you left again without me having this opportunity to air this out and really just like close this chapter of my life. You know, like I was, and I was even shocked at how much his passing affected me. Like I wasn't expecting it because I, I don't feel like I had formed the attachment of like, you know, um, a girl with, with her father. Like I, I was working towards that. And of course I cared about his well being, And, you know, I was really trying to give him a second chance and see him in a new light. And 
you know, um, see him as a person who we all have faults. We're all human. He did the best he could. Um, but yeah, I was angry when he died because I was like, wow, now I can't ever really have these conversations with him. After a long time of, uh, ignoring, ignoring that this is part of my history. This, this was my reality as a child. I am a product of divorce, not only divorce, but like a broken family. I couldn't say that for a long time. Like, I didn't want to admit that because it always makes me, even to this day, sometimes I still feel inferior. I still feel inadequate when I'm with like, especially in the South Asian community. And I hate that I feel this way, but when I look at all my South Asian friends, you know, who are dear to me, I have wonderful friends and community. And I, of course, you know, we're not supposed to compare, but I look at a friend of mine, same age, who's had, you know, a normal family life, uh, both parents around, not a lot of trauma, stable, you know, the worst thing that could, like, my worst days were very different <laughs> from most of my friends and, you know, who didn't experience a lot of trauma and grief and loss and things like that. And um, I, I, I would always feel like inadequate, like I'm not good enough. Like I'm just not, like I carried this burden with me. Like, I don't know, it just, it, it played out in not only my personal relationship, now that I'm thinking about it, it played out in like so many aspects of my life. parents are like telling their kids you can do whatever you want you can be whatever you want you you have it all in you I never had a cheerleader on my side like my sister yes 100% but that wasn't she was a parental figure to some extent for me but I never got it from my mother and father and so I had a lot I carried a lot of doubt which also turned into anxiety I always am an anxious person but I think ultimately when I decided to accept that as a part of my um history, who I, who I am, who I was, or what I went through. I remember writing a letter to him, basically releasing him, because I was just like, okay, forgiveness is where it starts, right? You have to, like, to move on, you need to forgive. So I think that was um, powerful and symbolic, because I think whatever is signified to the universe that I was ready to let it go. So, um, yeah, I kind of just forgave him for um, all the hurt and then I forgave myself too for um, letting it control me. Control is not the right word. Define me. It really defined me. Like I let it define me as the person like within my friends group. Oh, she's the one whose dad left her and she comes from a broken family and like I'm, you know, damaged or whatever. Um, but yeah, I let that go. I, I forgave myself and um I think it was right before I met Isaac. <laughs> so it was, um, I think it was a pivotal time for me to um, go through that process. Four years before Nishta's dad died, her mom succumbed to a years-long battle with poor mental and physical health. I've always felt like I knew Nishta's mother, even though we never met. Her presence is in the way Nishta speaks, 
the way she dresses, and especially when she talks about spirituality. I asked Nishta to tell me about her mom. Sure. Yeah, she um, <laughs> was a very kind woman, big-hearted, but um, unfortunately her life wasn't... Um, <laughs> she had a very um, hard life, but... You can pause for a second. I haven't talked about her in so long. <laughs> I wish I knew her in a different way. I wish I could take away the black cloud that surrounded her so I could see her for really who she was. And like, I would love, to, like, I don't have many memories of her smiling, you know, and that's hard because you don't want to see your parents, you know, not happy or, you know, sad. But unfortunately, I spent a lot of my childhood and adult life with her surrounded by heaviness and sadness, you know, but there were little glimmers of like, you know, I would see sometimes the things that made her happy. Like we, <laughs> she didn't want us to have a dog. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, just like all other kids, my sister and I were like, we always wanted a dog after our dad left. I think my mom was just like, finally like, okay, let's give them something, <laughs> you know, like a consolation prize or whatever. So we got a dog. His name was Moti and Moti, I think was one of the brightest lights in our life at that time because well for me as a child I had this cute little dog who I could just like hold and cry into his like fur and just tell him all my you know just yeah release it all and like he would just be there every single time I needed it and I think for my mom too it brought her some lightness too because you know dogs just have that ability to bring you joy and happiness and they're just such light beings you know, they're just great to have around for your mental health. But uh, she ultimately was the one who loved him the most. Like she, you know, she didn't want to have a dog. I get it. It's a lot of responsibility. But I think um, knowing that he brought her some joy for the short time he was with us, uh, she got to experience that makes me very happy because um, there was something that she had in her life that would bring her some joy. So we had this old vinyl sofa and I remember there was like a tear in it or something on one of the cushions. And at that time, my mom, you know, we had yellow pages. So she opens up the yellow pages and she goes to the V section and she sees this um, listing vinyl edge. So I remember she calls it and I think I told her, like, I may, I may have mentioned to her that, oh, I don't think that's a store where they, were, you know, repair furniture or whatever. But she's like, no, I'm going to call. So she calls vinyl edge and she was like, yeah, do you repair vinyl couches. I have a vinyl couch and it has a rip. And they're like, what? Sorry, ma'am. This is a record store. <laughs> and so that's how like naive my mom, not naive is not the right word, but she was just like, it says vinyl edge and I have a vinyl sofa. I want to get it repaired. <laughs> Let me call them, <laughs> you know? So she was just simple like that. And just like, she took things at face value, you know, but, um, she was just like, you know, she laughed about it because she, it was funny, you know, <laughs> like she called a record store trying to get her couch repaired, you know. <laughs> she was very beautiful. Like she had an uncle who was um, 
a Bollywood movie producer and he always wanted to put her into films, make her an actress. And of course her mother, her mom was like not having that. <laughs> but yeah, she was um, very, very beautiful. And um, she was a very um, elegant woman. People loved her a lot. I think, I don't know if I told you, but at her wedding, there were, not wedding, sorry, at her funeral, there were people from all of the religious um, places that she visited. Like people came from the, the Buddhist temple that she would go to and all the other places that she was very fond of. And they all came because, you know, even the Jehovah's Witness that would come door to door and they would stop. And my mom would t chat with them for like, you know, hours and they became friends, even though like she's, she was a very Hindu woman and, but she loved faith and she loved um, spirituality and discussion and discourse about it. So it was uh, really touching to see people from, you know, people I didn't even know that they had some relationship with my mom, you know? So I thought that was really special. After she passed, um, I would have these vivid dreams like every single day. I think it went on for a few months where I would see her face and she would be surrounded by white. I don't know what that meant, like where she was or if she was communicating with me. Um, I think, you know, like I said, she was a very spiritual person. So whenever I'm in like a temple or... I, I have my own little temple here. I, I When I do my own prayer, I think of her a lot. But also, like, just, you know, Punjabi foods. <laughs> if I see something that is very typical of what she would make or how she would make it, I think of her music. Um, the song, one song on my album is dedicated to her because it was one of her favorite songs. I see her in those moments, and then um, my sister looks a lot like her, <laughs> so I see my mom a lot in her, and um, traditions that like, oh, when I'm sick, if I'm whatever, there's there was always some remedy that she had, um, you know, if you're feeling cold, drink this, if you cut yourself, put this on it, you know, like, so those things still live with me that I remember. So I think of, like, I always think of, oh, what would my mom do? You know, like, um, little things like that. Like when I bought, when I bought a new car, my mom would have been like, do the, go to the temple and have the priest bless it. You know? So that's what I did, <laughs> you know, just that try to do things that, that she would do. So she lives on. My mom's, um, one of her old friends was in, was in town recently and she's a Punjabi woman around the same age and so she cooked all this food and that my mom would make and it reminded me so much of my mom and she she knew the struggles my mom went through they would talk all the time she actually had a very diff, has a very difficult marriage still and so my mom and her would chat and they would guide counsel each other and so anyway she was saying oh your mom would be so proud of you to see your life and so that felt really good to hear you know, because I always wonder, like, oh, would she be happy with, you know, where I am today? I'll never forget it. That Like, she'd always told me, health is your greatest wealth and always be independent. 
because she suffered so much being dependent on men in her life. She was like, this was the message that was loud and clear to me and my sister. Never be dependent on a man. Always take care of yourself and your health is your greatest wealth. Um, And she's right. Like I've had some minor health issues and, you know, you think about it. Yeah. If you don't have your health, like what do you have? And then you have to be independent, stand on your own two feet. Um, You just never know. Nishta is a successful musician and businesswoman, and her partner, Isaac, is a healing balm, a steady, loving, secure place to land. I remember around the time that they met, watching her bloom into this next chapter of life was so lovely. I asked her when she felt most beautiful. I think I have to say at my wedding. (laughs) Yeah, I just feel like that day people were holding me up in so much love and joy. And that's a memory that I'll have for the rest of my life. Nishta and Isaac had a traditional Punjabi wedding, complete with haldi ceremony and Isaac riding up to the venue on a beautiful horse to greet Nishta's family and get his bride. Weeks before... Nishta asked me to help her prepare on the day of her wedding. On the day, I helped to dress and prepare Nishta for the ceremony, adorning her with beautiful jewels. It was a sweet and special morning, a day I will never forget. The reception was so beautiful because, like you said, we had so much uh, love in music, right? We had a lot of... um, beautiful performances, one including you. You sang such a beautiful song, which was a surprise. And I re-listened to the other day and the lyrics were just like, wow, this person loves me this much. And this is like, one of the lyrics is like, never want to see you cry or something, right? Um, songbird, right? And I was like, wow, you know, that's how Isaac feels about me. And like, that's so special. Um, but so that was a really special moment. But I think the ceremony too, when um, it's rooted in so much tradition and um, you know, the the vows that we take, the seven steps that we took together, what that signifies, and like, you know, um, hoping that I would be with this person for my next seven lifetimes, like that to me is so beautiful. And then just having, you know, everybody shower their love on us at that moment when, um, you know, we are um, saying those, committing ourselves to each other and in front of everybody that we love and care for and um, in, in, in Punjabi weddings, I don't know if you remember, but when the ceremony is finished, I took that puffed rice and I threw it behind me. Uh, it's basically, you're giving, you know, you're hoping your family stays prosperous after you leave. Cause they say, um, the girl is Lakshmi is like the goddess Lakshmi, which means wealth and money. And she's leaving the home now going to someone else's home. So you want to make sure that the family you leave behind still stays prosperous. But, you know, without having my mother and father there, of course, that was a tinge of sadness. But I don't know, that moment was just something that was really, um, it's in my memory too. Like, I just felt so much joy in like um, the tradition of, you know, being a Punjabi woman too. You know, I don't know, um, with my mom being gone, it's really hard for me sometimes to stay connected to Punjabi traditions. And uh, I was very particular about wanting to have um, my wedding um, 
be rooted in traditions of, you know, a typical Punjabi wedding because if my mom were alive, I know she would insist on that. And it is it is part of my who I am. And so I think that moment that is so particular to Punjabi weddings was really um, beautiful for me to. And I, I think that if my mom was there, she would have loved all those elements of representing, you know, uh, Punjabi culture. Well, now that I share a little bit about my <laughs> childhood and my history, I think for me, um, a long for a long time, I felt like success. I defined it as having stability, because <laughs> I, you know, I said this before, I didn't have it, you know, growing up, and I feel like um, now I have it. I have a very loving, supportive husband who makes me feel like feel stable, you know, and secure. Um, for me, that feels very. Um, like successful in a way that I never knew if I was ever going to have that. I doubted it for a long time. Um, yeah, I think success, that's one part of it for me, but also um, that I've been able to earn a living doing what I do. <laughs> um, all my creative endeavors, um, being able to provide for myself and you know, be independent, uh, according to my mom, that was, you know, something that probably she, she regarded as being successful. But yeah, I think, you know, just, um, having a, a partnership that, um, somebody I chose, I wanted to be with, I was always against the idea of an arranged marriage. <laughs> uh, I mean, given what I saw my mom go through and my dad, I think having found a partner who compliments me, and who I feel happy with the success. Deep gratitude to Nishta for her time and stories. The Tell Her This podcast was created by Rochelle Rice with support from DC Commission on the Arts and Humanities. To support this podcast, please click the link in the show notes or visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash tell her this. For more Tell Her This content, please visit tellherthispodcast.com and follow on social media at Tell Her This Podcast. Please share this episode with a friend and leave a rating or review. This episode includes music by Maya Rogers and today's guest, Nishta Raj. You can find out more about their music and Maya's latest project, Orion and the Remembering Tree, through the links in the show notes. Editing and sound design by Rochelle Rice. Mixing and editing by Ray Jala. And I'm your host, Rochelle Rice, and you can find me at Rochelle Rice Music across all social platforms. Until next time, be true and be well.